Well, good morning, Redeemer. Good morning, good morning. If you have a Bible, we will be in 2 Samuel yet again, chapter 16. Don't worry, there is an end date. I worked it out. We'll be finishing before Easter, and then after we get through the evangelical feast days, we'll be taking up the book of Titus going into the summertime. But uh, we still have some business here to finish with our friend David. So we'll be looking at his fleeing Jerusalem and his son Absalom. But before we do that, let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the circumstances in our life that make us depend increasingly and, and, um, on you, that make us remember ourselves, remember who you are and who we are. We thank you, Lord, for the heat and furnace of your love that shapes and molds us. We pray that as we consider the circumstances of David's life, his sins, Lord, and his um, faith, that we would ourselves reflect upon our own sins and our own faith. We ask you in the name of your Son to open your word to us. We pray in his name now. Amen. Now, just to um, review, David was in Jerusalem when he found out that his son Absalom had begun a coup, a coup to take over the throne of Israel. And so he, he fled in order to avoid bloodshed. He descended in humiliation and then ascended to the Mount of Olives where he worshiped the Lord God. And then we take up the story from there. He's just been worshiping. He sent the ark back to Jerusalem because he's not going to use it as a talisman. And he's considering where to go and what to do. Now, in his flight from Jerusalem, he is faced with a number of foes. And then we will read a story of how one of his friends becomes a foe. Now, caught in a series of unfortunate events set in motion by his own sins, David at times seems extremely disoriented. He's unable or unwilling, for instance, to judge righteously between Ziba and Jonathan's son, Mephoshabeth. He's come back now. I thought I was, this guy's name was behind me, but here he is. <laughs> I'm going to mess it up all day long. He can't tell who is telling the truth and who's lying. He can't tell the difference between a lie and the truth. He's forgotten the process of justice to even determine who's telling a lie and who's telling the truth. But through it all, he is beginning to reorient himself to what really matters. To God on, on the Mount of Olives in chapter 15, he's, he reorients it to his responsibility. He defends Jerusalem by running away. I know for most of us, that is not what we think of when we think of military strategy. But one of the best things that you could do in a war is run away. George Washington used this trick. Uh, it is a fantastic trick. One way to keep your army from being destroyed is to never actually engage the enemy. <laughs> and so David flees Jerusalem in order to save it. Now, the swath of misery that sin cuts through his, his life and his family's life is heart-wrenching. It's heart-wrenching to read the details of what he has done and, and, and its effect on everyone around him. But God never abandons him. That's what we see here in this story. God never abandons him. And David is finding his way back to God. That's what this portion of Second Samuel is all about, God finding his way back to God. When David prays in chapter 15, verse 31, it is something that he is not mentioned doing in chapters 13 to 14. Remember, he was going to have a baby. Uh, the baby was sick. He was crying out to the Lord. He was going before the Lord. 
and uh, the baby died, and we don't see him go before the face of God again for two whole chapters. Then in 15, he suddenly does. And this is what I mean. He's finding his way back. He's reorienting himself to what matters and who matters. Now, David had refused to use God's ark as a talisman, as I said. Eli had done this. Eli was like, oh, well, if we want to win them, just send our, our... lucky charm out into the middle of the military and that will give us victory but that's not how the ark works now all in all it's a messy costly business events have been set in motion by his sin and events set in motion by sin always are messy and costly business it's it's expensive and it is troubling to commit sins it's expensive and it's troubling it's it's never an easy process Now, David is put into a position to exact revenge, but will he take it? He has enemies. He's now, right, he's he's down on the ground begging for mercy. And is he going to use that as an opportunity to revenge himself on his enemies? Are his enemies going to use this opportunity of his humiliation to revenge themselves upon him? That's what this whole story today is about, to revenge or not to revenge. That is the question. Right? I, right? If, if you know anything about military tactics, as soon as your enemy is in a weak position, it's absolutely the best time to attack. But what we're going to see today is that, is, is that mercy, mercy is a fantastic weapon. Grace is a potent weapon. I don't know who said it, but it, it, there's a song that um, Ken and Press put out a few years ago, Grace Hurts Harder Than Hell, and it is true. <laughs> and what we're going to see is that David is going to fight back with calm. David is going to fight back with mercy. David is going to fight back with grace. So if you have your Bible, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, and we will begin to unlock the story here. Now, chapter 16, it says, When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephoshabeth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephoshabeth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. Oh, that's very sweet. It's a very nice message, very humble guy. <laughs> now the meeting was not accidental. Ziba knows where to meet David on his path out of Jerusalem. He has valuable gifts, animals for transportation and food to sustain them in the wilderness. The donkeys were no doubt for the women and children and elderly. So like Joseph leading Jesus and Mary out from Herod, David leads the son of promise, Solomon, and the rest of his family on a donkey away from the murderers in Jerusalem. Ziba's generous provision was intended to nourish and refresh those who became exhausted in the desert. The absence of meat in the gift is deliberate. Why is it that I always feel like I have to explain a meatless diet? But I saw this. I was like, well, I can't. I got a comment on the fact it's unusual that they don't have meat. And that that can't just pass by without some comment. If if they had brought prepared meat, it would have gone bad because they are in the desert. If they had brought animals, it would slow them down. 
So David is out in the wilderness eating fruit, drinking wine. He, but, but they had left so quickly they had no supplies. So Ziba is doing a great favor to him. But David reacts to him with both suspicion and gratitude. David's suspicion was expressed in the form of two questions. Why have you brought these, and where is your master's grandson? Now Saul's household had worked for seven long years to prevent David from taking the throne. Remember this? This was an ongoing conflict between Saul's house and David's house. Now to assist David at this point is inconceivable to him. Why would you guys suddenly, while I'm in a weak position, help me? So he's immediately suspicious, and you can see that his wisdom is coming back. Because he wants to know, what do you gain by helping me? It's strange that someone from the house of Saul would help David. Ziba's explanation is that Mephoshabeth's absence is because he himself thinks he's going to become king. So in, in this opportunity here for Ziba is he's bringing up old arguments. See, Joseph and, or I'm sorry, David and Jonathan's son have made peace. They've had table fellowship. They are friends. The, the war between the two households has come to an end. And, and in his weakened position, what Ziba is going to do is bring up an old argument, an old fight, and use it as an opportunity to benefit himself. Because what does David do? David says, okay, well, everything that was his is now yours. Also, Ziba clearly gained something by coming out and helping David. He's not doing it out of the generosity of his heart. But this is something that happens to us when we are in a, posi- a weakened position, right? You, say you're, you're arguing with your wife. Say hypothetically. I know that most of you probably never do such a thing. But just say hypothetically you are. How does it usually work out when then all of a sudden in the midst of the argument that you currently have, someone brings up an argument from like two months ago? Right? Oh, here's my opportunity. Yeah, you always do this. And that's in a sense what Zib is doing here. He's, he's leveraging settled business in order to benefit himself. And this is something that, that people who are seeking revenge do. Ziba wants... He doesn't like being a servant. He doesn't like what has happened to Saul's house. And he wants to better his situation. He wants the wealth. He wants the household. He wants the riches. He wants the recognition. And he's using um, settled arguments in order as leverage to help himself. And this is the first instance where somebody is being vengeful. Somebody is getting revenge. He's getting revenge not on David, though, but he's getting revenge on his master. Because remember, his master is crippled. So his master isn't going to run out there and say, oh, oh, David, this isn't true. His master is probably, right, if he's taken all the donkeys out of the house, the master has no way to get out of the house out to where David is. And so this is what you see. This whole story is full of men who are taking the opportunity of David's weakened position to revenge themselves on somebody. Now, David demonstrates that he's not quite yet out of the shadows here, because as we all know from Proverbs 18, 17, he that is first that is first in his own cause, seemeth just. That's the proverb, right? The, the first person who comes and tells you a story, you think, oh man, that's horrible what that person did to you. Now, how often do we make a snap judgment then without going to the other person to find out what happened? Now, in parenting, I don't know about you, but I've gotten myself into more trouble with, by failing to, the, to fulfill this proverb than most others, where one kid comes to me and they're like, oh, you won't believe what so-and-so did. And I was like, I can't believe what so-and-so did. Get him. And then you go in there and it's like that scene out of um, a Christmas story where you hear the kid getting spanked on the phone <laughs> without comment. The kid's just screaming in the background. And then later after the spanking, it turns out the kid didn't actually do what he was accused of doing. So now you get to spank all over again. No, that's not, that's not usually 
at that point, you're kind of, right? When you, when you do that kind of misjudgment, when you injustice, you don't really feel like spanking people anymore. So it just disrupts the whole unity. It just disrupts the whole process. So David here hears one side of the story and doesn't feel like he needs to hear any other side of the story. This is extraordinarily bad leadership. This is not how God intends for us to make judgments. If you hear a story and you think, wow, that sounds quite incredible. Do not make a judgment until you go first and hear the other side, because there's always two sides. Because people do all kinds of things. People outright lie. People only give you some of the facts. People give you facts that only they understood them. And, and what you need are more witnesses in order to make a judgment. David is very foolish here. He should not make such a snap judgment. He should take these gifts, and he should move on and say, when I can find out what happened here, I will make a judgment about it. And if you're a father, if you're a husband, if you are a master in any way, shape, or form, do not do what David does here. Because later we're going to find out it causes a lot more trouble. Right? He's already got lots of problems, and he's just adding to them, not being patient, not being wise, and not actually trying to find out what occurred. Okay, but this is not the only Saul-eyed that David meets on the road. There's others. Okay? He's got all kinds of people coming up to him. Now, we take the story up in verse 5. It says, when King David, I'm going to read all the way down to the end of 14. When King David came to um, Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shammai, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David. And at all the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shammai said, as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son, Absalom, See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. <laughs> I like Abishai. <laughs> He's like Peter. Let me go and strike his head for you. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shemai went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. Now, this is an interesting story. The second member of Saul's household to address David while on the run is, is openly hostile. Shemai, Shemai is a descendant of Gera, one of the sons of Benjamin, so he's a Benjaminite. So here we have again these old wounds, these old conflict coming to light. Yet again, it's not, Israel clearly has angst over the past that they have together between these two households. Because as soon as there's new conflict, old conflict comes into it. it we are so tempted to do this when we get into conflict. It's so hard to leave the past in the past, to let forgiven sins be forgiven, to let providence uh, that has already occurred just rest. But what happens here, actually, as he's throwing stones, this is a mock execution. He is stoning David. He's stoning David because he thinks David is a murderer. He thinks 
David is a usurper. He thinks David should not be the king, even though God has made him the anointed. And remember how David treated Saul. David would never raise his hand. He would never throw dust. He would never throw rocks. He would never curse out loud. Saul, he showed him nothing but honor. And so this man is actually himself the thing he's accusing David of being. He is a man of blood. He wants David's blood. And, and this is often what happens to us. People accuse us of things, and if you stop and you pay attention, you actually figure out very quickly that they themselves are doing the thing they're accusing you of doing. Now, if, if you had a progressive liberal playbook, this, I believe, would be rule one. Uh, confuse everyone by accusing your opponents of doing the, th- the very thing that you yourself are doing. This is, this is how it works. And if you watch CNN, you watch Fox News, what you see is everybody accusing everybody else of doing the very thing they themselves are doing. And I think, in, in this case, Shemai has just lost his mind. He's, he's furious. He's taking this opportunity to get revenge. And he's saying something. If he stops and thinks about it, he is the very thing that he's accusing David of being. Now, one of the things he calls David is a worthless son. Remember this? This is a phrase going back to 1 Samuel that we have been battle, or dealing with all along. Two families, the worthless sons and the worthy sons of God. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 15 to 16, it says, But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. And, and this is the first time this Hebrew word is used, and, and it's used again and again and again and again. There, the, the households that are at war with one another ever since Genesis 3.15 are here in Samuel, and you see the, the worthless sons and the sons of God going fighting and having conflict all the way through. 1 Samuel 2.12, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. 1 Samuel 25.25, 25, Let not my Lord regard his, this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, which is fool, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. Now, what, what he means by son of Belial, a worthless son, is, is that he is, in fact, a scoundrel that he is of a base character. But what are we seeing here? Who is actually the son of Belial? Who is the worthless son? The house of Saul has failed. They are all of them worthless sons. And the worthless son is now out on the high ridge, throwing dust and throwing rocks and throwing curses down upon God's anointed, God's actual son, accusing him of, again, being the very thing that he is himself. Now, Proverbs 24 17 to 18 says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And I think that this is a very, very important point that we have to um, think and consider, going back to when uh, Ginsburg died, the Supreme Court justice. And, and, And when the righteous die, it is a good thing for the people of God. Amen. But there's a little bit, there's, there's a difference between rejoicing in the fact that a bad person who's done evil, wicked things is no longer amongst us. That's different than finding out where they're buried and dancing on their grave. Okay? What, what he is doing here is relishing the fall of his enemy. And God doesn't want us to do that. Okay? If, right? There, there is a joy when, when evildoers are destroyed, when they are removed. It is a thing to be joyous about, but it is not something to gloat over. Okay, we, we did not all gather at, at, at the state or uh, in the Capitol, and as Nancy Pelosi was leaving the Senate, we did not throw dirt at her and rocks and say, curse you, curse you, curse you. Yay, you're gone. We didn't rejoice over her and her fall. But I will say right now, I am very happy of the fact that she is no longer Speaker of the House. 
And this right here you see, right? Some men, in, in, when, when there are difficult circumstances, some people use it as an opportunity to revenge themselves and to find vengeance and to give vent to all their anger and all their bitterness. And that's what you see again and again here. The first servant is taking revenge upon his master. This one is taking revenge upon David. And what is David doing? Now, Abishai says, well, hold on. What is this dead dog? Let's take his head off. And what I find fascinating here is if David lets Abishai do it, he would be the very thing that he's accused of being, a man of blood. He would be the very thing he's accused of being. But he's not that. He's finding his way back to the God of justice, the God of mercy, the God of grace. And he says, you know what, who, who, who knows? Maybe the Lord told him to do this. And can you imagine, if you, if you were the most powerful man in the country, and you have all your mighty men there, and then just to save face, wouldn't you want to at least throw a stone back at this guy? But he's being disgraced and shamed before his family, before his soldiers, on the, on the road as he's fleeing his capital city because his own son has taken it from him. Now, Exodus twenty two twenty eight says, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. And so what they should do, if, if they're really concerned about this man and what he's doing to David, is they should clap irons on him and haul him off to jail. And then what they will do is have a trial and decide what to do with him. But it's not justice, even if somebody is doing this, violating the law, it's not justice to then take out your gun and just shoot them right there on the road. I, I, there was a video yesterday. A man justly pulled out his firearm and shot someone while he was eating tacos. Never mess with a man while he's eating tacos. He shot him. You're like, oh, okay. But then you watch the whole video, and he shoots him like nine times. After he's already fallen down and clearly isn't moving, he goes to walk away and comes back and shoots him again. Now, okay, necessarily, I don't think any jury is going to convict this man of homicide, but it it, it demonstrates something. Why? Why would you go back after you've already shot the guy and shoot him again? Why? Right? Why, if we see an injustice like Abishai sees here, he wants to take justice into his own hands. This is something we're very tempted to do. Well, that guy hates God, so I'm going to just curse him right now. I'm going to belial him, uh, malign him. I'm going to say terrible things about him. And, and, and what we want, right, this is like the abortion movement when people used to go down and talk about blowing up abortion clinics and they were killing doctors and things. We, because are those murderers? Yes. Does that mean we can take justice into our own hands? No. And so you see all around David, right, and how did the people get into this position? How is there so much disunity and bitterness amongst Saul's household? How is it that his own men, who are supposed to be mighty and supposed to be leaders in Israel, are so quick to forget the justice system and just go straight for executing this guy? Now, David is here in a situation that he himself has created. And what he demonstrates is how one ought ought to act in the midst of these circumstances. He makes a theological argument Echoing Deuteronomy 23.5, back there, there was a Gentile prophet, Balaam, who was cursing the people of God, and this is what God said in Deuteronomy 23. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. David says, listen, I, I don't know who told this guy to curse me, and he might be right. He might be right. If he's wrong, I think God will take care of it. And, and that is a lesson that, that he and his people have forgotten. As you can see how bloodthirsty his own followers are. Now, David is demonstrating equanimity. 
This is an important word that many of us need to learn. Many of us need to contemplate. Many of us need to ponder in our hearts what it means to have equanimity. Philippians 4.5, let your equanimity be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, what does that word mean? It means calmness, composure, evenness of temper. So something happens, and you don't get too, right? You don't go too wildly high in your emotions. You don't go too wildly low in your emotions. David himself isn't down on, on his knees, tearing his clothes and rubbing dirt on his head. He, he, he's getting this response from the sky. He, he's calm. He says, ah, no, listen, we don't know, right? We don't know, so we'll just wait. He's showing equanimity. Nobody else in this whole story is showing any kind of balanced, calm, uh, tempered, careful, thoughtful approach to this thing. Everybody is just looking for blood. He has created a situation in Israel where everyone is very bloodthirsty and and the system of justice has been forgotten. But what have we heard? His own sons are rapists and murderers. And now he's, he's in the middle of a situation where what he's got all around him is rapists and murderers. And, and, and the way to restore calm in the midst of a situation that you've made like this is to be the one who is calm. So if you're a father and you're sitting around your dinner table and it is absolute chaos, the person to blame is yourself. And the person who's going to fix it is you by what? Being calm. Being calm. You know what raises um, the temperature in my house? When I raise my temperature. <laughs> the louder I get, the louder everyone gets. Right? When, I, when, I don't res- when I don't respond to things the way that I'm supposed to and everyone's watching me, what are they learning how to do? To respond in a way that they ought not. And, and what you see is that all of these people around David, he's the king, he's the one in charge, they are acting just like him. There's no justice here. They're men of passions. He was a man of passion. And, and so what I find here is his, he's finding his way back to God, and his way back to God starts with himself. It starts with self-control. It starts with, I'm not, going to get, I'm not going to lose it here. I'm not going to kill that guy, and I'm not going to punish him. What we're going to do is we're going to just wait. And you see a process here, right? Because he started with the first guy who, who tells a lie about Jonathan's son, and he believes it at first. But now he gets into the, right, and this is a more intense situation. And what you see is, is the temperature is going up all around him, but what's happening to him is he's getting calmer and calmer and calmer. And that's real leadership. When everybody else starts to freak out, it's the calm one in the middle who's just talking in a normal, right? Because when you're talking in a normal voice and everybody else is shouting and they, and they want to hear you, what do they have to do? They all have to quiet down. I, I learned this from a kindergarten teacher when I worked in Providence. Because I'd be standing there observing her class, and all of a sudden, it's quiet just like that, and everyone's, because she's talking like this. And it's amazing how you get chaos, right? Suddenly becomes a very calm situation when the person who's at the front of the room gets very calm. Now, is your household out of control? (laughs) You've got kids running around, throwing dirt at you and cursing you, (laughs) and other kids like, hey, let's take his head off. I mean, do you have this kind of chaos? You have this kind of rowdiness going on. The best thing that you can do is realize that you've caught it, and, and you are, in fact, the cure. And it's by being showing equanimity, calmness. Now, in true Christianity, a treatise written in, by the 17th century Lutheran theologian John Arndt, it states this, external insult, rejection, and injury 
you are to not only accept without anger, wrath, and desire for vengeance, but think also that it is a test of your heart by which God wishes to reveal what is hidden in you, whether there is meekness and humility in you, or whether there is pride and wrath. If there is meekness and humility in you, you will conquer all insult with meekness. And so some of us just flip out when other people sin against us or sin against one another. And, and sometimes that sin that has occurred is, is, is something that you have to deal with, but it's also meant to reveal something about your own heart and how you respond. Are you David or are you Abishai? Are you David's like, hey, I don't, you know, I'm not really sure here. This could be God who's doing this to me. Or are you Abishai and you're like, let's take the dead dog's head. Let's do it. Let's just chop it right off. Our circumstances, our, our external pressures, meant to shape us like heat in a furnace. That's what they're meant to do. God leads us deeper into the purifying love of his providence to expose those impurities and false hopes and idols that we cling to instead of him. A Christian counselors, Lane and Tripp, they wrote a, a book called How People Change, and they refer to this external heat as being instrumental in the life of a Christian. Now, they explain... When you are in the middle of the heat, you haven't somehow gotten yourself outside the circle of God's love and care. God is simply taking you where you do not want to go to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. As you rest in his love, you will learn about the heart behind your responses so that you can grow in the faith, hope, and love to which you were called. The heat will remain because it's a fallen world and we still need to change, but in it, all, his grace is always present and always sufficient. So his grace is the weapon he's using, the tool in his hand, to apply outside pressures that reveal what's inside of us that shouldn't be there. And, and <laughs> you guys can pray for my wife, because one of the things I like to tell her is like, you know, I think there's something we need to fight about. We need to have some serious conflict right now, because I think there's something in one of us that is, is, needs to come out. And, lo and, and, and I almost always think it's her. It's almost always me, but I, we only get there once you have some external pressures. You know, I didn't like it that you did X. Now, you say that to a person, that's heat, right? You're, you're spicing things up. <laughs> now, sometimes in marriage counseling, too, this is also what I tell people. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to sit here, and what I would like you guys to do is fight. I'm gonna, I'm, we're just going to ask some questions, and we're going to get some conflict going, because there's things inside of you that need to come out. And that's what the 17th century Lutheran is talking about. That's what Lane and, um, Lane and Tripp are talking about. God it loves us, and his gra- he's very gracious. And his grace is a weapon. It's a tool that he shapes you into little miniatures of himself. And so you're thinking, why am I having all this external heat? Why is there all this external pressure? Why is all this stuff? And, and you're getting angrier and angrier. And you're like, well, that's why. You just, you just revealed why. Because you're angry or bitter, or lonely, right? Or you're not trusting him, or you, ha- right? Why am I talking to you about this issue and you're talking about your cousin? What does that have to do with this? Well, that just popped out of you. That's very interesting. Let's talk about that for a minute. And, and that's why actual biblical conflict is so good for us. This is excellent for David. He's on the way back to, back to God, and what he's finding out is, all, is what, how, the state of his heart and the state of the heart of the people around him as the conflict rises. Now, some of you might be a little uncomfortable with what I just said. Fine, don't go home and create conflict. You should, but you don't have to. If you just wait around long enough, conflict will come to you. Okay? And what you need to not do is shy away from those things. 
external pressures are meant to reveal what's actually going on inside our hearts and in the hearts of your family members. Now, John Arndt, our 17th century Lutheran theologian, continues, he says, Indeed, you will consider it to be a chastisement of the Almighty, as David said when Shammai attacked him. The suffering of insult is a great part of the injury that Christ must bear. God is so good and faithful that he will give much more honor and grace for undeserved injury. King David held it for a certain sign that God would honor him again when he suffered injury from Shammai, and this indeed came about. So what it it caused David to do is we can see the trajectory of things for him here because this, all of this external pressure causes him to rely more on the Lord. And that's actually what's supposed to happen. External pressure comes, and what we find out is David is standing here. He's not bitter. He's not angry. He's not holding on to anything. He says, you know, this guy might be right. He's humble enough to admit this person probably might be right, and, and maybe God told him to do this. Let's just see what God is going to do. And in this, he is demonstrating the Lord Jesus. It says in Hebrews 12.2 that we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He knew what came after the conflict. Because some of us are like, no, conflict, no thanks. No mas. But he saw what lie beyond conflict. And that, that's something that I like couples to learn learn, right? There is something going on here, and what you need to consider is what, what is coming on the other side. What's the joy? You don't want to bring this up with the person that you had to bring it up with, but what lies beyond? Well, what lies beyond is real reconciliation. What, line, what lies beyond is sanctification, and that is a treasure. That is a joy. So we look to Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the one who's in charge, the one who's at the right hand of God the Father now, orchestrating all these events in our lives. We look to him who, for the joy set before him, got up from his prayer and went to Calvary. He knew where the conflict led. As was read for us today from 1 Peter, this is, Peter has a lot to say about this. This is somebody who liked to go for the... Right? He was a man who did not shy away from conflict, and, and, and things were constantly popping out of him. So I, 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 a lot of us need to be more like Peter. He opens his mouth and says the wrong thing, and everybody thinks, oh, well, he should just shut up. Now, I actually think he should keep talking, because, man, I'm learning a lot by everything that Peter has to say, and I've I, read the Gospels. He's learned a lot from everything Peter has had to say. He pulls a sword out, he stabs somebody, he, he, he asks questions he shouldn't ask, he accuses Jesus of things he shouldn't accuse, and I like it. He's a man who's spicing things up, raising the heat, and, and, and is demonstrating through all these circumstances what's actually inside of him so Jesus can address it. So then Peter tells us, right? Peter knows a thing or two. He, he says in 1 Peter 2, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We're not to avoid conflict. When, when external pressures and troubles come our way, like they've come to David, we are, we are to respond like David. Not cursing and reviling in return. Not, not putting the heat back on the people. But, but looking to the Lord to rectify, to, to justify, to make right everything that happens to us. Because there's all kinds of things that have occurred to you 
right? All kinds of sins, parents, siblings, spouses, children, co-workers, strangers. And, And what is all of that about? It's because in the end, you're going to be a very different person. You're going to be a person who's constantly looking to the heavens to rectify the things that have happened to you. You say, you know what, I, you know, that, I know now my neighbor, my jerk neighbor is in a rough way. And you know what I should do is go down there and just really rub his nose in it. That is not going, <laughs> that's not the way. That's not the way. We do not take vengeance when vengeance offers itself. When people are actually in our face and, and real, right, I, I have to do something about this right now, look at what David does here. Say, you know what, this might actually, I might deserve this. The way my kid is sassing me right now, the way they're reviling me, I actually probably deserve this. And I'm going to calmly deal with it. Now that, now you're like Christ. Now you're like the Lord God. Proverbs 25, 21 to 22. If your enemy is hungry, <laughs> what, what, what do you do? You give him food. So just give him bread to eat. If your enemy is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head. <laughs> and modern evangelicals, whose God is niceness, cannot figure out what to do with this. What do you mean I fight with, with charity? Right? And, and the rest of us who want to fight like the world fights think, wait, I don't understand. I thought what I was supposed to do is start a podcast and talk about how the Speaker of the House is an idiot. No. <laughs> you, want, you, want, you want to overthrow the forces of darkness? Find your enemies, find out what's wrong, and fix it for them. Now, who did that? Whose plan was that? Jesus looks at his enemies, you and me, and he says, you know what I'm going to do to fight them is I'm going to go and I'm going to go fix their problem for them. And that is the strategy of heaven. That is the strategy of the kingdom of heaven. That is supposed to be our strategy. The, we, we don't look around and see the things that are going on and say, oh, these are opportunities for us to score points. We look around and we say, what are the problems that need to be solved, especially with those people who hate us the most? This is why I love these guys who go down to abortion clinics, and they have like four people there who already have all the paperwork to adopt the babies, <laughs> and they're sitting there fighting with the, the unbelievers, and the unbelievers are like, well, you don't really care about these people. You would never take these kids into your house. And they're like, oh, yeah, we would. And, and they adopt a kid right there. Now, that's what I'm talking about. You want to fight? Fight with grace. Fight with mercy. Don't score points. Don't win the argument. Win the man. What is the larger principle? What is the larger need? How can you actually fight by being merciful, by being gracious? Right? If we're, if we're trying to find a culture to fight the culture war with, let it be a culture of mercy and grace, fulfilling those very things that are even our enemies need. Now, we're going to conclude here, the, la- the portion of this story, with, with the worst humiliation that David has suffered thus far. But I think he's ready for it. After this, right? Here's a man who he could easily lop the head off of, who's pretending to stone him, who's throwing dirt on him, who's shame- publicly shaming him right in front of all of his buddies. And, and he, he handles that with equanimity. I think he's ready for what's coming next. It says in verse 15, I'm going to read till the end of the chapter. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the 
archite, David's friend, came to Absalom. Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son as I have served your father? So I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel. What shall we do? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and Absalom. Now at this point, we're reconnecting with where we left off in chapter 15, verse 37. David's friend was going to flee with him, and he sent him back and said, no, 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 you can serve me by going there and giving counsel to my son Absalom. And he returns immediately to Jerusalem and gets there just as Absalom is entering the city. Now what we're going to do is we're going to go back and take that story up. Absalom has arrived in Jerusalem, even as David and his followers are there in the distance fleeing the city. Prominent among those arriving to set up the new government in Jerusalem was Ahithophel, but Absalom is surprised to find Hushai in the city, since he was David's friend. So Ziba had appeared to be a friend earlier, remember? And who was Ziba with all the camels and the food? Who was he really serving, David or himself? So that guy appeared to be a friend and wasn't. Now, Hushai appears to be disloyal, but is, in fact, crucial to David's victory over Absalom, as we're going to see next week. It's, it's a clever, clever trick that they're playing here. Now, as in his previous exile in the wilderness, David used ruses and deception to protect himself and undermine his opponents. He instructed Hushai to deceive Absalom, to subvert the advice of Ahithophel, and Hushai plays his role to the hilt. Ushai is in Absalom's presence and begins carrying out one of the most successful acts of deceit and subterfuge in Israelite history. He, he actually doesn't lie. He says the truth, but Absalom, as Absalom understands what he's saying, is the opposite of what he actually means. And this, this is very clever. This is very clever. The greatness of Hushai's performance can only be appreciated as one understands that he is, in fact, the master of the double entendre. When Hushai proclaimed, long live the king... Absalom obviously understood it as a declaration of loyalty to himself, but what Ushai actually means is long live King David. He didn't say what king, he just says long live the king, long live the king. So in his heart, in his mind, and on his lips, it's truth. Long live the king. That's David, not Absalom, because Absalom is a pretender. Now even Ushai's declaration that he would serve Absalom just as I served your father is quite cunning. Because how had he served David? He was David's loyal friend. So he will continue to serve him as his loyal friend. So he's, he's saying, well, I'm going to keep on doing what I was doing anyway, which was helping David. But Absalom hears everything he says and thinks, oh, this guy is here to help me. This is fantastic. This is wonderful. And he takes him into his council, which is exactly what David wants, which is actually going to be the, the way that David defeats his son. Now, the untasteful part. Now, Ahithophel has advises Absalom to sleep with the royal concubines, that have been left behind, and he does this for a couple of reasons. One of them is, symbolically, the king was married to the bride of Israel, and the concubines represent the kingdom. Seizing the king's harem was equivalent to seizing the kingdom. 
So if the king cannot protect his own brides, he is incapable of protecting the nation and everyone's going to see it. Look, that guy cannot even defend his own household and he no longer can defend the household of God. When Absalom slept with his father's concubines, he was sending a message that he was now in charge of both the royal house and the whole nation. Now, Ahithophel's plan is brazen, it's simple, it's almost sure to succeed. The plan would accomplish two things. Ahithophel saw that this action would make him odious to David, but also in these early stages of the rebellion, many in Israel are still on the fence, waiting for some decisive moment to make a decision about who they're going to side with. Seizing David's concubines for himself, there is no retreat, there's no possibility of reconciliation at this point, and it's so provoking that he causes everybody to pick a side early on. It's actually a very clever move. However, okay, it seemed good to Absalom. They, they, they set up a tent in the very location that David stood looking at Bathsheba. And who's Bathsheba's grand, or grandfather? Ahithophel, the man giving the advice. And so what we see is this theme continues. So here Ahithophel has an opportunity. All these years, he's never sought justice for his daughter or granddaughter, Bathsheba. Now that David is within his grasp, he's like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to do the very same thing to him that he did to my family. And so they, they set up a tent on the very roof. David is the cause of this. This is what he said earlier. It's not the Benjaminites who brought this upon my, my household. It's Absalom, my very son. David did this. And, and, and this is the vengeance that the Lord is taking on David. And everybody else is piling on to their shame and to their own destruction. So this is what God does. He's done it throughout the Old Testament. He's dealing with his son. He's faithfully dealing with his son. And he's using evil and wicked men to to bring about chastisement and discipline to his own son. Now, this isn't just, this is important. There is a tent. This is not like it was a public sex show for everybody to behold. There is a tent. Everyone knows what's going on inside of the tent. But it's not as if they were just doing this in the open. But it's on the very, the very roof that David stood looking down on Bathsheba. Now, the fact that Ahithophel seriously proposed such a foolhardy plan can be taken as evidence that the Lord had indeed responded to David's prayer. Back in chapter 15, in verse 31, David, it says this, And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And what we see here is actually that's occurring. His counsel is foolish. Thomas Watson, in his exposition of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, explains, God is perfectly wise. There is no defect in his wisdom. Men may be wise in some things, but in other things may betray imprudence and weakness. But God is the exemplar and pattern of wisdom. God's wisdom is seen in befooling wise men and making their wisdom a means of their overthrow. Ahithophel had deep policy, but he consulted in his own shame. The Lord turned his counsel into foolishness. And here's what I mean by that. Because in a strategic way, in a Gentile way, in an earthly way, in a fleshly way, what he appears to give his advice seems wise. Right? And his voice is like the voice of God. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So he's got David as an enemy. He's got David right where he wants him. And instead of prosecuting that war with justice and righteousness and equity, he has now caused Absalom to make God his enemy. Because, right, they think that all there is is David. 
We're just dealing with David. Except there is this pesky little thing called the law of God because God's actually in charge and he's the one that judges between one person and another. And, and so here they are in their foolishness, not just making David their enemy, but making God their enemy. And this is sometimes, again, something we do. Seeking vengeance on one another, seeking to score points on one another, seeking to move the ball forward on the culture war, we end up violating God's law. We end up doing things that do not please him. We don't go about justice. We don't go about the process of justice. We don't go about the process of humiliation or, or, or to rectify things as they should be, as David has surely done. No, in, our, in, our, in, in the heat of the moment, sometimes the, the cunning thing we've come up with actually makes God our enemy. By violating the harem of his father, he is in fact violating the law of God, and now he doesn't have to worry about David anymore. He has to worry about God. And this, right here, ladies and gentlemen, is the fruit of vengeance. Absalom has become Amnon. He's a rapist. What set him on this road? What set him down this path? Well, his brother violated his sister, and no one did anything about it. And, and as he pursues his plan, his way, his kingdom, his justice, what he becomes is the very thing that he hated in the beginning. Shemai has become a man of blood. There's no trial for David. There's no, there's no justice here. He's throwing stones at him because he thinks that David is a man of blood who ought to be put to death, and by doing so, he himself becomes a man of blood. This is what bitterness, this is what vengeance, this is what taking things into our own hands looks like. We become the thing that we hated, the thing that we thought we were fighting. It is what we ourselves become. Ahithophel did not seek justice for what David had done to his granddaughter, Bathsheba, like Shemai. He takes advantage of David's weakened state to exact his own vengeance. Revenge has, has turned Ahithophel's wisdom into shame and destruction. One whose voice was like the voice of God is now somebody who's opposed to God. In seeking his own cause, he is conspiring against the anointed of the Lord. And how does that go at the end of Psalm 1, Psalm 2? How does that go? If you're conspiring against the anointed of the Lord... What's going to happen to you? You're going to be crushed with with a rod of iron. Now, all of these events, you can see there's righteousness, there's unrighteousness, there's good guys, there's bad guys, there's people acting the way they should, there's people not acting the way they should. But what is all of this about? Well, all of this is about punishing David for his sins and his iniquity. He, he, he left God, and God said, you will be judged for this, and your household will be judged, and a sword will come, and it will not depart. And so sometimes, right, this is important for us because we're looking around, and we see good guys and bad guys. We see guys taking advantage of situations, guys, um, right, who go out and help David, and really what they're doing is serving themselves, but they seem like friends, but then other guys... Uh, who were friends or not friends anymore. And, and sometimes when we're looking around the landscape, it's actually kind of hard to figure out what's going on. But what a story like this tells us is that whatever is going on, whatever side anyone is, who is behind all of it? Who is the one orchestrating all of it? Who is the one using sins and righteousness for his purposes? It's the Lord God. It's Yahweh. He is in heaven. He will not be moved. He is in charge of everything that's going on. And, and, and what we need to do is stop sitting down here trying to figure it all out, but look to him. Right? David has, this is what's set before David, obedience or disobedience. 
And what does he choose? Obedience. What's set before every character? Obedience or disobedience? And, and, and what we ought to do is cho- choose obedience to the word of God. But even when we don't, even when others don't, the one who's in charge of the whole thing, keeps his mind and hands around the whole thing, is guiding the whole thing, and, and he will not let injustice stand. He will take up your cause like he has taken up David's cause. And so the thing you need to worry about is not what's going on with so-and-so down the street or this enemy or that enemy or this thing or that thing. What you need to focus on, like David, is in the moment saying, what am I going to do right now? Am I going to raise my voice? Am I going to yell? Am I going to sin? Am I going to seek vengeance? Or is what I'm going to do is submit to the hand of God, looking to him to to show me what's really going on, to take up my cause for me, to fight on my behalf, That's the option, or disobedience, or your will, or your kingdom, or self-satisfaction in every conceivable way. It's chaos here, and who caused it? David. And and, and God won't let it stand. He's disciplining his son. And in the midst of it, what do you see David doing? He's getting calmer and calmer and calmer. He's in the wilderness, in exile, which is where he started, at peace, eating food brought to him by somebody who was dishonest. Right? He's, in a, he, I, he's on the run, but he's out at a campfire, toasting apples, having a good time, resting, recovering, preparing. And, and this is... <laughs> now, in your own life, in the life of those, those people you love, David was already in the wilderness. He already had one uh, member of Saul's household trying to murder him, Saul. He had one member of Saul's household comforting him, Jonathan, he has the same thing here. He has one guy helping him and one guy cursing him from the house. And, and what I find fascinating about this story is that he's, he's actually ended up right back where he began. Now, most of us are like, you know, I'm fine with God doing what he's going to do. But, so, but how often do you think, I, I, what I don't want to have to go through again is that? What I don't want to have to go through, right? I already learned all there is to learn about that experience that I had in my life. And don't take me back to that. But here is David back as an old man, exactly where he was when he was young. Why? Because his heart is the thing that God is going after. And he will take him through the same experiences as many times as he has to in order to have what? His heart. And so you think, okay, well, I've grown up now, and I'm ready for the big time. I'm ready for the next challenge. I'm ready to, for more mature problems. And how often do you find yourself exactly back where you were before? Now, the lesson there is not that God is unfaithful, not that there's any problem with God, but that he's got to run you through your paces one more time like a student because you have not yet learned. And in the midst of it, your option is obedience or disobedience, looking to, him, to, to the heavens, to the Lord Jesus Christ, or not. And, and mundane stories like this, stories full of iniquity, stories full of sexual sins and, and murderous hearts and lying and all of, this, all of this subterfuge, the thing that remains in the middle that is unmoved is the Lord God. And he, he, at whatever cost to him, at whatever cost to you, will in fact bring us home and make us like himself. So don't react in bitterness. Don't react with a vengeful heart. Don't be surprised that these things keep befalling you because the Lord God is taking you through his, your paces like a faithful father. And the, and the joy set before you at the end is the reason, is the hope, is the thing you keep your heart and mind fixated on as you're going through whatever you're going through. And, and, and if you want to be a successful husband, a successful wife, 
children who are successful, a successful business person, a successful teacher, a successful whatever, the thing that you have to do is, like David, he becomes the calm, unmoved center of this whole story. Because why? His God is the calm, unmoved center of the whole story. And that's what he wants us to be, like him. And, and that's what we see. David, David is going through the same stuff all over again so that he can be like his God. So that he can be a king, like his God, the king. That he can be a father, like his God, the father. Like He can be a lord, like his lord. And that he can lead. And that he can stand up to things. And he, he can show people the way like he is supposed to. And, and, and that, I believe, is what you need. Start with yourself, right? Be the center, be the calm center, be obedient, not looking to yourself, not looking to opportunities of the flesh, but looking to the Lord our God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, we thank you for David's flight from Jerusalem and all that you taught him through that process. We thank you, Lord, for showing us all these characters and their motivations that we might consider our own hearts and minds, our own lives, our own stories, and, and, and the most that are behind the things in our everyday life. I pray that as we go from here, that we would choose to be obedient to you, that we would keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus, that we, we would be, that we would show our equanimity, that we would be calm in the midst of the storm, because we know, Lord, that you are the rock that shall not be moved, upon which we stand, and amen.